stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. All right, welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you. Afternoons on 770 CHQR. Lots more still to get to here today, including your calls, your texts at 403-974-8255. A significant development in the Alberta legislature this week uh, with the passage of Bill 204. Now, this legislation was quite straightforward in that really all it did was repeal legislation brought in by the previous NDP government back in 2017. Bill 204 was called the Voluntary Blood Donations Repeal Act, which references the legislation brought in in 2017. That legislation uh, banned the compensation of plasma donors and banned private companies uh, from establishing businesses here in Alberta, clinics in Alberta, that would do just that, compensate plasma donors. Now, a lot of the debate has been around this, this idea of whether it's, it's right or wrong to, to compensate people for donating plasma. The reality is uh, that that practice is commonplace in the United States, and Canada is heavily dependent on the United States for plasma products. In fact, much of the world is heavily dependent on the United States for plasma products. So maybe we have to get over this, this question here and, and look at ways in which we can become more self-sufficient. Certainly for those who rely on plasma-derived therapies, this is an important issue. So I wanted to get some perspective on uh, why this is significant and what more provinces, what more as a country we can do uh, to increase our own availability of plasma and therefore our ability to access uh, plasma-based products. Uh, Joining us uh, to talk more about uh, all of this is Kate Vandermeer who is uh, with the group Plasma for All, is a uh, motor neuropathy patient uh, herself, so has first-hand experience in in dealing with this issue and some of the shortages Canada has encountered in the past. Uh, Much more, by the way, at plasmaforlife.org. Kate, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Hi, thank you for having me. We appreciate you joining us here today, and I I think it's an important perspective on all of this. One that that maybe gets left out of the the conversation a lot of the time, that of of patients, because you've been very outspoken on this. In fact, a lot of patients' groups have been very outspoken on this. Why why is this issue so important, first of all? Well, it's something that patients rely on for their health. So ultimately, whatever happens with this decision, you know, we're really celebrating the fact that the repeal has come through in Alberta, um, but it's something that affects our health. And, you know, there's, there's nothing more personal than that. So let's talk about how this all works. Plasma obviously is derived from blood, but donating plasma is a different process from donating blood. That plasma then goes to, to be used for specific pharmaceutical products, uh, some of which are literally keeping people alive. So what's the process here and and how does it affect you? So for different people, um, it depends on the disease that you're treating. So for some cases, especially in primary immunodeficiency, it's a matter of, you know, life and death, right? And for other more neurological conditions, such as what I have, you know, it's something that uh, it's an autoimmune neuromuscular disorder. So the plasma therapies, uh, they help slow the progression of that disease. 
basically by retraining your immune system because the only other option is to turn to immunosuppressants, which of course would suppress your immune system altogether. And in the midst of a pandemic, that's not a very great option. But uh, the main difference is, you know, the time it takes to donate plasma is much greater. Uh, it takes about an hour and a half to two hours to donate plasma because you are hooked up to a plasmapheresis machine where they are returning your red blood cells back to you, which is also why you can donate plasma more frequently than you can donate whole blood. Now, we do have uh, in Canada, I mean, obviously we have voluntary plasma donation and Canada Blood Services oversees that. There are some clinics, I think there's, there's a couple, one in Saskatoon and, and another in, in eastern Canada, uh, where donors are compensated. So we, we have some of that infrastructure in Canada, but, but still, it, it's a fairly small percentage of Canada's overall plasma needs, isn't it? It is. It's actually uh, between 13 to 14 percent uh, sufficiency that we have in Canada when it comes to plasma therapies. And there are a lot of patients who rely on those plasma therapies because, you know, it's not just one or two diseases that it treats. It's a long list of autoimmune disorders, immunodeficiencies, on top of the other uses for uh, plasma transfusion, such as treating burns. Um, so there is an increasing demand for these therapies. And if we all of a sudden make new discoveries that therapies such as immunoglobulin therapy are effective for treating other disorders, then that demand could skyrocket. And we already are in a position where, you know, I suffered through the shortage of 2019, and now Canadian Blood Services is projecting another shortage looming in 2021. So it really is a dire situation, uh, the global plasma supply. Yeah, and it is a worrying situation. I guess the unfortunate thing, even though Alberta is taking a step in the right direction here, you know, might not be enough to, to avert what's potentially coming in 2021. No, and that's the biggest thing about this whole issue is, you know, you hear a lot from the other side of, well, Canadian Blood Services has this plan to open uh, 40 plasmapheresis centers throughout Canada in hopes of achieving only 50% self-sufficiency, which, in my opinion, that's not good enough. And so this plan, it's, one of, it's a real gamble that patients can't afford to take because it is going to fall short because they are only aiming for 50% self-sufficiency and to build that donor base is going to take a lot of time that patients do not have. There's the concern about even if we're able to to collect more plasma in Canada, that we, we don't have the, the manufacturing capability uh, when it comes to developing these, these plasma products, these pharmaceutical products. So I guess inevitably, even if we can uh, increase the, the number of donors, where, where are these products going and, and how do we ensure that, that we can be more self-sufficient on the other side as well? Well, currently, like you said, there's no infrastructure here. So Canadian Blood Services is having to ship out the plasma that they collect to be processed and be returned back to them uh, for patients. So 
it's a bit of a catch-22 scenario where right now we don't have the plasma collection level to justify having a large industry, but you know, we need to have that that industry to become more self-sufficient. So that's why we really feel that this repeal of the Voluntary Blood Donations Act is a real step in the right direction because we can build that infrastructure and build that donor base here in Canada to justify a greater industry here. Does Canada Blood Services... It need to be more open then to to working with the these other clinics and and some of these private clinics if if we're going to to see more of those does there need to be better cooperation because it seems like Canada Blood Services just sort of has a, a line drawn in the sand that just no matter what they they seem to refuse to work with these companies or or to have some kind of an agreement in place to to take on this supply. Yes, I, I know that uh, Canadian Plasma Resources has offered multiple contracts. Uh, in fact, like an unprecedented 20-year contract to Canadian Blood Services to give them that peace of mind, um, but yet they refuse. And I have contacted Canadian Blood Services myself, and I didn't really get a clear answer. You know, I got the whole security of supply defense and, you know, that they need to have control over the plasma that is collected. Um, But I feel like they really are not compromising. And, you know, over and above the Voluntary Blood Donations Act, Canadian Blood Services is exempt from the Voluntary Blood Donations Act. So even without this repeal, Canadian Blood Services could decide tomorrow that, you know what, we need to drastically collect more plasma within Canada and they could make that decision, but they absolutely refuse to. And that is, you know, part of patients are suffering the consequences of that, you know, and you talk about wanting to keep, uh, you know, the unfortunate term of these profit-seeking blood brokers out of Canada, well, if that's truly what Canadian Blood Services would like to do, the best thing they could do is decide to pay donors themselves. Right. Yeah, exactly. And it it, it seems really disingenuous on their part and, and those who, who advocate the same position to, to sort of get on a soapbox and say it's it's wrong to, to compensate people. You know, we want it to be 100% altruistic, uh, which is all well and good, but then where do we end up getting it from? We're getting it from donors in the United States, donors who are compensated. So it just seems really hypocritical, isn't it? Oh, it does. It is extremely hypocritical and infuriating in that respect, especially when you consider that Canada is so reliant on the United States that we are taking away from their supply. Like right now, the United States is supplying about 70% of the global need, which, you know, we are more than capable in Canada of having a safe industry here. And arguably, we would have more control to protect donors if we had the industry within Canada than we do when we're importing these products from the United States. You know, all we're doing right now is saying, oh, no, we can't exploit Canadian donors. We have to exploit Americans instead. And I don't think that's fair at all. 
No, you're right. doesn't make any sense. Um, so we'll see where things go from here. A step in the right direction here in Alberta, though. Plasmaforlife.org is the website uh, for much more on that. Uh, Kate, thanks so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate this. Thank you. All right. All the best. Take care. Uh, that is uh, Kate Vandermeer. Uh, co-founder of Plasma for Life, plasmaforlife.org. Uh, and uh, as mentioned, a patient herself who was affected by the shortage in 2019 and really worried, like a lot of other people are, about potential shortages in 2021. And disruptions in plasma donations as a result of the pandemic are almost certainly going to re- result in reduced supply. And understandably, look, the Americans are going to look after themselves first. Uh, that we're fortunate that uh, the Americans have such an abundance of plasma that they can supply us and the rest of the world. But there's no guarantee that's always going to be the case. And what, what other situation would we allow ourselves to be that vulnerable, to be that dependent, and to be so hypocritical in the process? Our number here, 403-974-8255. We'll have some more time for your calls later in this hour. Plenty more still to get to here on this uh, Wednesday afternoon. And don't forget, we will have an update from Dr. Dina Hinshaw coming up at 3.30. But off the top of this hour, I want to talk about an important story from uh, Alberta's history. In fact, it was 60 years ago this week, November 15th to be exact, that the last execution in Alberta was carried out. Uh, Robert Raymond Cook was executed November 15th, 1960, at the provincial jail in Fort Saskatchewan, convicted of, well, specifically convicted of murdering his father, but essentially convicted of murdering a total of seven people, Robert Cook, Daisy Cook, and their five children, shot and bludgeoned to death and found in the grease pit in their garage in Stetler, Alberta, June of 1959. So for a small community like Stetler and that whole area, it was clearly a, a shocking, shocking crime and one that's still talked about today. What added to, to all of the intrigue around this case, in fact, we had a caller uh, earlier in the program reference it, the fact that uh, Robert Cook, not long after he was arrested for the crime, escaped from the Pinocchio Institution, where he was being held for a psychiatric assessment, and was uh, on the lam for days before finally being found hiding on a farm near Bashaw. So, The crime was June of 1959, the execution November of 1960. And as mentioned, it was Canada's last, or rather Alberta's last execution. But there is still fascination with the case, not just the scope of it, the shock of seven people, including five children being murdered in a small Alberta community, but whether the right person was arrested, charged, convicted, and executed for the crime. And especially when when you hang somebody to death, that's a, that's a big and troubling question, isn't it? Whether the right person uh, was arrested. Well, it's certainly a case that uh, fascinated uh, our next guest. In fact, he uh, produced a documentary about this case uh, about five years ago. You can read more at robertcook.ca. The documentary called The Grease Pit. Joining us uh, on the line this afternoon is documentary filmmaker Rick Smallwood. Rick, so great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Uh, thanks for having me. So what was it about this case that, that got you interested in it? Well, uh, I remember about my parents talking about it. I was five when it happened. But as I grew up, I remember hearing about it here and there. And uh, I remember my grandmother once, uh, maybe 10 years after the execution, kind of talking to me about how upset she was. 
I don't know if it was because she thought he was innocent or just that he, uh, she didn't believe in hanging. But, <clears throat> excuse me. So I kind of had an interest in the case. And in the 80s, the Sun did an article, a series of articles on the case that kind of twigged my interest again. And when I got into doing films, I just kind of gravitated back to the story and just got into it, and away you go. Yeah, and and I mean, clearly, that's the starting point is this shocking crime. You're seven people murdered, five children murdered, in in you know a small and a safe community like uh, like Stetler, and and clearly there was a, a lot of shock. But let's let's talk about Robert Cook. So he was. Um, uh, Raymond Cook's son. He was a, a child from a, a previous marriage, right? Yeah, he was. Uh, his mother died, I think, when he was nine years old, if I recall, uh, suddenly and unexpectedly. Uh, they had lived at Hannah at that time. And so him and his father had lived together by themselves for quite a few years. And then he remarried one of his teachers, and they ended up having five children. He was the only one child from the, the original marriage. And he was young. He, he had not even yet turned 22 when these murders occurred, right? He, he was a young man. He was, uh, if I'm right, he was 22 when it happened and 23 when he was home. So yeah, he was just a kid. Yeah, and, and I mean, whether or not he did this, he, he, was, he was a troubled young man, wasn't he? He was. He, he had a history of uh, petty crime. Uh, you know, I, uh, he did not fit, apparently, with the new family. He just didn't seem to fit and got into stealing cars and a whole history of petty crimes, robberies, uh, car theft, times in jail. You know, he was doing hard time in a federal prison at the age of 16, which today would be totally unheard of. So it's a tragedy in that he never really had a chance to... Uh, turn himself around. It was never given to him. So the uh, the defense attorney who, who represented him uh, later went on to become a, a well-known judge in Alberta. He's still alive today, in fact, 92 years of age. Uh, and he still co- is convinced, David McNaughton is his name, um, that there just there wasn't enough there, that if he had been a judge in this case, he says, he wouldn't have, he wouldn't have convicted this guy. So what, what was the case against Robert? Well, I got to know Miss, uh, Mr. McNaughton quite well during the filming. He did an extended interview for the film. Uh, it's, I don't know, it's, it, it's hard to say. At the time, uh, the newspapers started to put out stories during the trial that some of the evidence wasn't lining up, and you know how those things can, can kind of snowball. Yeah. But uh, one of the points he made in the in the film was that the jury sat in that courtroom through the whole trial and heard every piece of evidence in its context, whereas things people were reading in the paper, you know, might be, you know what I'm saying, might not be the full story or taken in the right context. So in that case, this thing that they say that it was circumstantial evidence, which is true, but uh, in most murder cases, the evidence is circumstantial. And it was... Uh, it was quite overwhelming if you really look into the case in its totality. It's interesting because do you, do you think there was a motive, even putting aside the, the evidence question for a moment, did there seem to be a, a motive here, do you think? Uh, 
I think he just felt ostracized by his family. Uh, uh, I can't get into a lot of details about what might have set him off, but I uh, I just believe that uh, he had been released from Prince Albert Penitentiary five days before the murder. He traveled back to Stettler, um, and his dad and him were supposedly going to start a garage business, and this had been his dream in prison and all and everything. And I believe when he came back to Stettler, he was rebuked by his family. And I think this set him off, and he killed everybody. He just went into a a state and killed everybody. That's what I believe happened. That's only my own opinion. But what do you motive, make it? I don't, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. You know, just just the feeling that the only thing he had to hang on to, you know, between him and his dad seemed to be gone. Maybe he just snapped. There was this one mysterious bit of evidence because, and I know McNaughton and others have pointed out that there was never any blood found on, on Cook's shoes, no no injuries on him, nothing, you know, cuts or bruises, that no evidence that he ever owned a gun. But there was this this shirt that was found. I think a white shirt that was found. It had the name Ross on it. Yeah. It had blood on it. It had stains on it. What do you make of that? I, like I said, Rob, it's hard to get into a lot of the longer details in a shorter mm-hmm. interview. It is it is covered in the film, but there was some oddities in the evidence. They found a shirt in the bedroom that with a Ross laundry tag on it that apparently didn't belong in the house, and and there was. They were trying to tie him to wearing it, and there's a whole story in itself about shirts that he wore from prison and what was found in the house and how it might have just been in the house laying around for years that people have stuff like that. We'll never know, you know, an oddity like that. There's kind of a whole story that goes into these shirts (laughs) from from when he left Prince Albert. There was also the escape. It was interesting. We had a caller earlier today, and he was, uh, the caller said he was a young man at the time. He was working in the area. And just how, how panicked everybody was that here we are just, what, I think a couple of weeks after the murders, not even. And all of a sudden, now the, the accused suspect is, has escaped from Binoka Institution. Nobody knows where he is. Uh, that There was certainly a lot of concern at the time. What are your thoughts on, on the whole escape element, uh, that why he did it, why he stayed in the area? Can we make any sense of that? Uh, well, the whole escape is just a, a fascinating story in itself. Uh, no one to this day is quite sure how he got out, but he did get out. I think it was just a, a desperate attempt to, I've got to get out of here, or maybe he realized what he was in for and... I'm not sure. Something to that effect, I think. And he was smart. He was a very smart person and cunning. And he he figured out a way to get out of there. And it was four days later they caught him half-starved and a pathetic sight. He he never mm-hmm. got away, obviously. <laughs> now, he maintained his, his innocence right up until the end, of course. He, he did send, there was a last-minute plea for clemency that included a poem he wrote. So ultimately, was it uh, the federal government? Was it the prime minister who, who had the final say on this? Yeah, the justice system at the time, a charge of capital murder that was a mandatory death sentence. There was no life in prison, no 25 years. You got If you were convicted and guilty, you were sentenced to hang. 
But at that time, the death sentence was starting to wane. And Diefenbaker, who was the Prime Minister at the time, was very anti-capital punishment. But, uh, and he had revoked, I can't remember the exact number, a majority of death sentences were being revoked to life in prison at that time. But there's a political story behind this about another mass murder or a child killer in Calgary, I'm sorry, and I won't get into the total details, but he had been found guilty of killing a young girl and then judged insane and not to be hung, and it enraged people. It just enraged people. It wasn't even a year later that Cook's case came up for review, and there was a lot of political pressure that... uh, that that couldn't happen again and that someone had to hang for this crime, and he did. Well, the documentary is called The Grease Pit, the story of Robert Raymond Cook, the last man hanged in Alberta. RobertCook.ca is the website. You can read more about uh, your work on this case. You can still order DVDs uh, of the documentary, I believe. So, uh, Rick, it's been great talking to you here today, and uh, thanks so much for making some time for us. Uh, Thank you very much. All the best to you. Uh, Rick Smallwood, documentary filmmaker, and uh, this is one of his projects from 2015. Again, it's called The Grease Pit, the story of Robert Raymond Cook, the last man hanged in Alberta. RobertCook.ca is the website uh, for this uh, particular documentary film. So, yeah, it's a case that that, uh, caught Rick's attention. It's caught a lot of people's attention over the years. There's been numerous uh, books, and I think there was even a play written about this case. It is still talked about, uh, certainly in in that part of Alberta, from what I understand. People know the case, even those who, who weren't alive when it happened. And there's still divided opinion on this case. There, there are a lot of weird elements, and obviously, I mean, investigating murder is a lot different now than it was then. There's still the basics. Gather the evidence, build a case, but, you know, forensic science, all of that has changed a lot. So who knows? Who knows if this was, um, you know, really the guy that did it? I think our, our guest, as he indicates, thinks it probably was. But uh, there, there is that difference of opinion. And... You know, that's that's the thing with the death penalty, right? Because uh, our system gets it wrong. And we know that. There's there's no one doing the death penalty. There's no one doing an execution. Uh, but as mentioned, uh, the mayoral race, which is still about 11 months away, has another entry into the field. We're all still waiting to find out whether the incumbent's going to be in the mix. Uh, but we do know uh, it's uh, confirmed today. Our next guest, Calgary businessman and entrepreneur Brad Field, is going to be running for mayor. He's uh, president of BRC Group, business based here in Calgary, and hopes to be the next mayor. He joins us on the line here this afternoon. Brad, thanks so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Oh, thanks for having me, Rob. All right, so let's talk about the decision, uh, you know, to throw your hat into the ring, and obviously we're still a ways away, but what convinced you that uh, it was necessary and the right thing to do for you? Well, you know, being a Calgar- Calgarian for nearly five decades, uh, I have a great sense of duty to give back to the to the city that has given me so much, both professionally and uh, profess- uh, personally. And uh, Calgary is in dire need of positive, collaborative leadership, and uh, I believe I can bring that forward. But what do you mean by that? What's lacking, do you think, right now? Well, I think that the genuine lack of sincere, positive leadership. 
Uh, we see what goes on in city council. We see what happens in the media. And this polarizing blame and shame game that seems to be going on, it, it's just not, uh, it's not productive by uh, any means. And, you know, we're, I'm, you know, personally, I love having differences of opinion. And I think when you have those uh, different ends of the spectrum discussions and you can bring people to the middle uh, from both ends, uh, that's where great things happen. Well, and certainly part of the job of mayor is, you know, to bring people together and, and to get people behind you. So that that certainly comes with the job. But I mean, ultimately, mayors have to make decisions and decisions are, are going to, you know, not everybody's going to agree, obviously, right? So there's the need to make tough decisions. I mean, do, do you see this as is this a, a right left thing in, in your view? Is it political? Is it sort of business versus anti business? Or what do you see as, as the divides right now? What do you bring to the table? Well, I think, you know, I think what I bring to get to the table is that strong collaborative leadership style. And, you know, it's not left or right. Uh, I don't think it needs to be. Uh, you know, municipal politics is, is not party politics. And, uh, you know, for me, bringing, you know, my business acumen uh, and experience uh, to the table enable, will enable the city to uh, deliver, you know, services in a cost-effective manner. And, uh, you know, being an outsider with a different point of view, um, you know, uh, I think it, it helps. Uh, the thousands of people that I've talked to over the last uh, three years since I committed to, uh, to running um, say that they want change. And, uh, you know, I firmly believe that um, City Hall can't change City Hall. So, you know, that's what I, uh, that's what I bring to the table. Now, as I said, we, we don't know whether the current mayor is, is going to be a candidate, whether that's going to be somebody you'll be running against. Um, but, I mean, how much of this has to do with, with the current mayor? What, what do you make of him and, and the job he's done, whether he would even deserve another shot at? Well, I think, you know, anybody who runs for public office uh, is uh, needs the respect. Uh, and uh, I just think that our current council and mayor have, you know, lost track of that leadership role that uh, Calgary needs at this time. Uh, we're in dire straits. Uh, we have been for some time now. And uh, what I see is just a general lack of positive leadership. And uh, so I think the voters uh, will make that decision on current council and, and the mayor, whether or not uh, uh, you know, they see fit to uh, reelect. But uh, I believe that uh, Calgary, Calgary deserves stronger leadership. And I believe I'm the person that can provide that. But I mean, Calgary's, uh, you know, at a bit of a tipping point here, obviously, and we've had a rough few years and, and the pandemic has, has hit the city hard, uh, you know, the vacancies in the downtown, the, the whole, you know, property tax ripple effect that it's had on, on businesses elsewhere, you know, making the city competitive, drawing business here. There's a lot of challenges, right? So what What's being done wrong? What, what are we missing? What kind of policies are, are going to, to get the city back on track? Well, I think it starts, uh, you know, with strong, again, strong leadership. We have to set the tone. Uh, if, uh, if you know, I'm uh, lucky enough to be elected in 2021, uh, we have to set the tone and rebuild the trust. Uh, and through, you know, through my leadership during the campaign and hopefully after a successful election, you know, I intend to earn the trust and support of uh, the people of Calgary. But beyond that, um, you know, and we've got to deal with COVID and it looks like we might have an end in sight, uh, but I still think we're going to be living with uh, uh, COVID for a while. Um, but we have to get back to um, a business-friendly atmosphere uh, where uh, businesses can flourish and jobs can uh, be plentiful and uh, also work on uh, fiscal responsibility about around delivering cost-effective services, good cost-effective services to Calgarians.
And I guess it's a question of the timing that, that, you know, why make the announcement now? It's still 11 months away. I mean, is that just kind of the, the nature of municipal politics that we're looking at a, an almost year long campaign? Or what was your thinking on that? Well, I think, you know, we're in a different situation because of COVID. You know, um, you know, in a normal campaign, you would be doing large group settings, large meetings, uh, events and so forth. But because of COVID, obviously, and, and uh, restrictions in place and wanting to be safe, um, you know, as much lead time as possible. Uh, we've got a lot of work to do and, and uh, lots of people to meet, and we want to do it in a safe manner. So in order to meet as many people as possible and have those discussions, uh, we had to start early, and, and uh, that was our th- thought process. All right. Well, the website is up. It's brad-field.ca. And, uh, Brad, I'm sure we'll have uh, plenty of opportunity to talk between now and next October, but appreciate making some time for us here today. Thanks for this. Rob, thank you so much. Take care. All right, you as well. There you go. That's uh, Calgary businessman, entrepreneur Brad Fields, uh, who's looking to be the next mayor. Throwing his hat in the ring. Uh, it's now official, brad-field.ca. I guess you want to read more about him. So we got Jeremy Farkas, who's in the mix. Will Ned Nenshi be in the mix? And it certainly changes the dynamic of the race, doesn't it? <laughs> and maybe that's part of what uh, Nenshi's waiting to see. If it's an incumbent versus a bunch of challengers, well, that bodes well for the incumbent. Because you're kind of splitting that anti-incumbent vote. If if Nenshi's not in the mix, then it's it's wide open at that point. So obviously his decision's going to loom large on this race. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, Rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.